That's more like it, isn't it, Daniel? Yeah, I suppose, yeah. Unless <laughs> you prefer EastEnders. Uh, pardon? I said I prefer EastEnders. You prefer, I prefer sons and daughters. Oh my God, you're taking me back now. And just before we started this, this show, we, we were talking about age and getting older and things like that. And we really feel it now, we're fathers. Yeah, we really do. And I was wondering, like, it, doesn't time pass really fast? Yeah, too fast. And it's only when you realise that it's passing fast that it's already passed again. Yeah, and why does it pass so fast? I mean, it was only yesterday that we were making a radio programme. Well, I know it wasn't yesterday, but it seems like that to it me. It seems like there's been this bizarre time-space compression and that, you know, no time has passed at all since we were sitting here. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. We fill our lives with all sorts of things these days. I guess with the more responsibilities we get, the quicker it goes by. Yeah, maybe it has something to do with not being able to learn new things anymore. Maybe that's why we can't really... I mean, that, maybe that's the reason why time passes so fast, because we're not able to learn as children do. As children do, I mean, yeah. You're reminding me of something in my childhood now. Um... Certainly when I was a younger lad, I was not very well behaved and what my parents did uh, was to try and correct my behaviour and get me on the right pathway. They sent me to Sunday school to try and uh, see if I could learn some values from Christianity. Oh, Sunday school. And was it only on, on Sundays or when was it? Yeah, it was, it was basically we go to church and within the church service they had a little a bit of time, about half an hour, where uh, we went into the corner of church and learned about all of Jesus' wonders. And eventually, unfortunately, um, I started to get a little bit suspicious about all this. And uh, I started asking questions about how Jesus could feed 5,000 people with two loaves and five fish or yeah, whatever I, it was. I bet they liked that. They didn't, actually, which is why shortly after I was thrown out of Sunday school. Oh, my dear God. <laughs> Careful with what you say. <laughs> but how, how fitting that um, this should be our... Our theme for today. Um, it is indeed. It is, is religion good or bad? Which is a tricky question. It's a very it? tricky question. Is it? Is it good or bad? Does it exist? How does it influence people if it exists? Or what it does to people? Um, or the extremities perhaps that it takes people to um, if people invest in that kind of um, pathway. I think what we're going to do is we're going to hear a, um, a wonderful... Um, lecture, short lecture from philosopher Kwame Anthony Apaya, um, who's going to speak about this, and then we will make some very apt and timely reflections. Sure about that. Let's, let's, let's listen to it now. Let's get started. People say things about religion uh, all the time. Uh, <laughs> the late, great uh, Christopher Hitchens wrote a book called God is Great, whose subtitle was Religion Poisons Everything. <laughs> but last month in, in Time magazine, uh, uh, Rabbi David Wolper, who I gather is referred to as America's rabbi, said to uh, balance that against that negative characterization that no important form of social change can be brought about except through organized religion. Now, remarks of this sort on the negative and the positive side are very old. Um, I have one in my pocket here from the first century BCE by 
by Lucretius, the author of On the Nature of Things, who said, tantum religio uh, potuit suadere malorum. I should have been able to learn that by heart. Uh, <laughs> which is, that's how much religion is able to persuade people to do evil. And he was talking about the fact of Agamemnon's decision to place his daughter Iphigenia uh, on an altar of sacrifice in order to pr preserve uh, the prospects of his army. So there have been these long debates over the centuries, in that case actually we can say over the millennia about religion. People have talked about it a lot. Uh, and they've said good and bad and indifferent things about it. What I want to persuade you of today is of a very simple claim, is, which is that these debates are in a certain sense preposterous because there is no such thing as religion uh, about which to make these claims. There isn't a thing called religion and so it can't be good or bad. It can't even be indifferent. And if you think about claims about the non-existence of things, uh, one obvious way to try and establish the non-existence of a, of a purported thing would be to offer a definition of that thing and then to see whether anything satisfied it. And I'm going to start out on that little route to begin with. So if you look in the dictionaries and if you think about it, one very natural definition of religion is that it's it involves belief in God or in spiritual beings. As I say, this is in many dictionaries, but you'll also find it uh, actually in the work of Sir Edward Tyler, who was the first professor of anthropology at Oxford, one of the first modern anthropologists in his book on primitive culture. He says the heart of religion is what he called animism, that is belief in spiritual agency, belief in spirits. First problem for that definition is from a recent novel by Paul Beatty called Tough. There's a guy talking to a rabbi. The rabbi says he doesn't believe in God. The guy says, you're a rabbi. How can you not believe in God? And the reply is, it's what's so great about being Jewish. You don't have to believe in a God per se, just in being Jewish. <laughs> so if this guy is a rabbi and a Jewish rabbi, and if you have to believe in God in order to be religious, then we have the rather counterintuitive conclusion that since it's possible to be Jewish rabbi without believing in God, Judaism isn't a religion. That seems like a pretty counterintuitive thought. Here's another uh, argument against this view. Uh, a friend of mine, an Indian friend of mine, went to his grandfather when he was very young, a, a child, and said to him, I want to talk to you about religion. And his grandfather said, you're too young. Come back when you're a teenager. So he came back when he was a teenager, and he said to his grandfather, it may be a bit late now because I've, I've uh, discovered that I don't believe in the gods. And his grandfather, who was a wise man, said, oh, so you belong to the atheist branch of the Hindu tradition. <laughs> and finally, there's, there's this guy uh, who famously doesn't believe in God. His name is the Dalai Lama. He often jokes that he's one of the world's leading atheists. But it's true, because the Dalai Lama's religion does not involve belief in God. Now, you might think this just shows that I've given you the wrong definition and that I should come up with some other definition and test it against these cases and try and find something that captures uh, atheistic Judaism, atheistic Hinduism, and atheistic Buddhism as forms of religiosity. But I actually think that that's a bad idea. And the reason I think it's a bad idea is that I don't think that's how our concept of religion works. I think the way our concept of religion works is that we actually have, we have a list of paradigm religions and their subparts right? And if something new comes along that purports to be a religion, what we ask is, well, is it like one of these? <laughs> right? 
And I think that's not only how we think about religion, and that's, as it were, so uh, from our point of view, anything on that list had better be a religion, which is why I don't think an account of religion that ex excludes Buddhism and Judaism is, has, a, has a chance of being a good starter, because th they're on our list. But why do we have such a list? What's going on? How did it come about that we uh, have this list? I think the answer is a pretty simple one, uh, and therefore crude and uh, contentious. I'm sure lots of people will disagree with it. But here's my story. And it, uh, true or not, it's a story that I think gives you a good sense of how the list might have come about, and therefore helps you to think about what use the list might be. I think the answer is uh, European travelers, starting roughly about the time of Columbus, started going around the world. They came from a Christian culture. And when they arrived in a new place, they noticed that some people didn't have Christianity. And so they asked themselves the following question. What have they got instead of Christianity? And that list was conducted, was, was essentially constructed. It consists of the things that other people had instead of Christianity. Now, there's a difficulty with proceeding in that way, which is that Christianity is extremely... Uh, even on that list, it's an extremely specific tradition. It has all kinds of things in it that are very, very particular, that are the results of the specifics of Christian history. And one thing that's at the heart of it, one thing that's at the heart of most understandings of Christianity, which is the result of the specific history of Christianity, is that it's an extremely creedal religion. It's a religion in which it's really people are really concerned about whether you believe the right things, the history of Christianity, the internal history of Christianity, is largely the history of people killing each other because they believe the wrong thing. Uh, and it's also involved in struggles with other religions, obviously starting in the late, uh, in, in the Middle Ages, uh, a struggle with Islam, in which, again, it was the infidelity, the fact that they didn't believe the right things, that seemed so uh, offensive to the Christian world. Now, that's a very specific and particular history that uh, Christianity has. And... Uh, not everywhere is everything that has ever been put on this sort of list like it. Here's another problem, I think. A very specific thing happened. It was actually adverted to earlier, but a very specific thing happened in the history of the kind of Christianity that we see around us, mostly in the United States today, and, that, and it happened in the late 19th century. And that specific thing that happened in the late 19th century was a kind of deal that was cut between science, this new this new uh, way of uh, organizing intellectual authority and religion. If you think about the 18th century, say, if you think about intellectual life before the late 19th century, anything you did, anything you thought about, whether it was uh, the physical world, the human world, the, the natural world, apart from the human world, or morality, anything you did would have been framed against the background of a set of assumptions that were religious Christian assumptions. You couldn't give an account of the natural world that didn't say something about its relationship, for example, to the creation story uh, in the Abrahamic traditions, the creation story uh, in, in the first book of the Torah. So everything was framed in that way. But this changes in the late 19th century. And for the first time, it's possible for people to develop serious intellectual careers as natural historians like Darwin. Darwin worried about the relationship between what he said and the truths of religion. But he could proceed, he could write books about his subject without having to say what the relationship was 
to the religious claims. And similarly, geologists increasingly could talk about. In the early 19th century, if you were a geologist, you made a claim about the age of the Earth. You had to explain whether that was consistent or how it was or wasn't consistent with the age of the Earth implied by the account in Genesis. By the end of the 19th century, you can just write a geology textbook in which you make arguments about how old the Earth is. So there's a big change, and that division of intellectual division of labor occurs, as I say, I think. And it's sort of solidified so that by the end of the 19th century in Europe, there's a real intellectual division of labor, and you can do all sorts of serious things, including increasingly even philosophy, <laughs> uh, without being constrained by the thought, well, what I have to say has to be consistent with the, with the deep truths that are given to me by our religious tradition. So to imagine someone who's coming out of that world, that late 19th century world, coming into the country that I grew up in, Ghana, the society that I grew, grew up in, Asante, coming into that world at the turn of the 20th century with this question that made the list. What have they got instead of Christianity? Well, here's one thing you, he would have noticed. By the way, there was a person who actually did this. His name was Captain Rattray. He was sent as the British government anthropologist, and he wrote a book about Asante religion. This is a soul disk. There are many of them in the British Museum. I could give you an interesting, different history of how it comes about that many of the things of, from my society ended up in the British Museum. <laughs> but, but, uh, but we don't have time for that. So this object is a soul disc. What is a soul disc? It was worn around the necks of the soul washers of the Asante king. What was their job to wash the king's soul? It would take a long while to explain how a soul could be the kind of thing that could be washed. But Rattray knew that this was religion because uh, souls were, were in play. Uh, and uh, similarly, there were, there were many other things, many other practices. For example, every time anybody had a drink, more or less, they poured a little bit on the ground in what's called a libation, and they gave some to the ancestors. Uh, my father did this. Every time he opened a bottle of whiskey, which I'm glad to say was very often, he, <laughs> he would, he would take the top off and pour off just a little on the ground, and he would talk to, he would say to uh, Akraman Pim, the founder of our line, or Yao Antonia, my great uncle, he would, men he would talk to them. Uh, offer them a little bit of this. And finally, there were these huge public ceremonials. This is an early 19th century drawing by another British military officer of such a ceremonial, uh, where the king was involved. And the king's job, one of the large parts of his job, apart from you know, organizing warfare and things like that, was to look after the, the tombs of his ancestors. And when a king died, the stool that he sat on was blackened and put in the royal ancestral uh, temple. And every 40 days, the king of Asante has to go and do cult for his ancestors. That's a large part of his job, and people think that if he doesn't do it, things will fall apart. So he's a religious figure, uh, as Rattray would have said, as well as a political figure. So all this would count as religion for Rattray. But my point is that when you look into the lives of those people, you also find that every time they do anything, they're conscious of the ancestors. Every morning at breakfast, that you can go outside the front of the house and make an offering to the, the god tree, the Nyamidja outside your house. And again, you'll talk to the gods and the high gods and the low gods and the ancestors and so on. This is not a world in which the separation between religion and science has occurred. Between Religion has not been separated from any other areas of life. And in particular, what's crucial to understand about this world is it's a world in which the job that science does for us is done by what Rattray is going to call religion. Because if they want an explanation of something, if they want to know why the crops has failed, if they want to know why it's raining or not raining, if they need rain, 
Uh, if they want to know why, uh, why their, their grandfather has died, they are going to appeal to the very same entities, the very same language, talk to the very same gods about that. There is no, this great separation, in other words, between religion and science hasn't happened. Now, this would only, this would be a mere historical curiosity, except that in large parts of the world, this is still the truth. Uh, I had the privilege of going to a, a wedding the other day in northern Namibia, 20 miles or so south of the Angolan border in a village of 200 people. These were modern people. We had with us Una Chaplin, whom you, some of you may have heard of, and one of the people from this village came up to her and said, I've seen you in Game of Thrones. So these were not people who were isolated from our world. But nevertheless, for them, the gods and the spirits are still very much there. And when we were on the bus going back and forth to the, to the various parts of the funeral, they prayed not just in a generic way, but for the safety of the journey. And they meant it. And when they said to me that my, um, my mother, the bridegroom's mother, was with us, they didn't mean it figuratively. They meant, even though that she was a, uh, a dead person, they meant that she was still around. So in large parts of the world today, that separation between science and religion hasn't occurred in large parts of the world today. And as I say, these are not, these are not, uh, you know, this guy used to work for Chase and at the World Bank. <laughs> <laughs> uh, these are fellow citizens of the world with you, but they come from a place in which religion is, is occupying a very different role. So what I want you to think about next time somebody wants to make some vast generalization about religion is that maybe there isn't such a thing as a religion, such a thing as religion, and that therefore what they say cannot possibly be true. <laughs> Can't possibly be true, my goodness. Well, it's, fu it's funny how it started like it was, sounded like it was going to be a comedy. Uh, I just wondered if they were paid to laugh because I didn't find that very funny at all. Yeah, it's like a stand-up comedy, isn't it? Sometimes. Or sit-down comedy, because it really wasn't that funny. Not really. <laughs> but, uh, my goodness me, I mean, where do you start with such a, a topical issue? Um, I mean, some of the things he says, uh, no such thing as, as religion, as he pointed out. Um, a lot of the definitions conflict each other, but maybe he's taking those definitions a bit too literally. And then when he ref referred, and I use his words, pers religion persuades people to do evil. So... Is it religion as this sort of static concept doing it to people, or is it that is it people's investment in religion and the extent to which they take their investment too far and how it becomes enshrined in in part of their identities? Mm -hmm. And I suppose we can look at the most recent example of what happened in Paris with the Charlie Hebdo murders, um, because of the magazine was intentionally um, you know, depicting offensive religious cartoons, uh, including the depictions of the Prophet Muhammad. So I mean. Like, um, uh, how seriously do people take religion, or is it religion is it something which does something to people? Yeah, because it, it, then if if it's the, the first thing you said, maybe it has something to do more, something to do with uh, the the way people are. It's like um, their their nature mm -hmm. when it gets um, in touch with the religion. Yeah, it becomes twisted. Yeah, because I suppose, like anything, it's um, it's a kind of a, an ideological power, religion, isn't it? It's like any kind of um, thing you learn about, which uh, what could offer you values, or you know, I suppose for young people thinking about joining gangs or uh, something like that. You know, you you learn from from these kind of things. Um, 
it surprised me how um, embedded some of the phrases, religious phrases are in our language even, you know, when even people who aren't religious will say, bless you, oh, after yes. sneezing, or they'll say, oh, my God, you know, in sort of disdain or surprise. But God it doesn't, Almighty. Yeah, God Almighty, but, you know, it doesn't really... Uh, it, <laughs> it, you know, we say it without thinking. It's the same with some of these Spanish terms. Yeah. We were talking before the programme, but some of them can be quite extreme, and, uh, um, you know, people say them without thinking. If we can be permitted to be using one me cago en Dios for instance if yeah. we translated that directly it means I shit on God which doesn't you know coming from a Catholic country with a Catholic history that send people around the world to convert to Catholicism <laughs> sounds quite ironic really how, how can you follow a religion to the extent where when you swear by chance that you're saying that you're going to shit on God yeah it's very puzzling where, where does it come that from where, where? I don't know. It's a bizarre, bizarre thing. Um, I found that very interesting. Um, incidentally, actually, I, I asked my students the other day when we were talking about the the power of ideology and things like that. I asked them if they thought Catholicist values still exist in Spanish schooling. Do you know if that's that's true? I think it does. Yeah, in some places it does still, but uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't know where exactly. Yeah. And I wanted to know... Christenings still exist. Yeah. Yeah. Because I wanted to know as well was whether that, that kind of schooling with an emphasis on religion, um, well, I would expect it to have some bearing on, on the values that they adopt for life, really. Because mm-hmm. a lot of the values that we've come to know about how to live and how to morally behave come from things like different types of religion. Yeah, well, it, it depends on the historical background, doesn't it? Yeah, and um, it certainly struck me with um, the the history of uh, of religion and how and certainly it, I keep coming back to this phrase that he said persuades people to do evil. I mean, when you have to look at history about you know, how many people, how many times of people died in the name of of religion. Um, I mean, yeah. I, I'm not an expert on this, but uh, but I'm wondering about. It seems that he's talking about. In one side, he's talking about God, and on the other side, he's talking about progress. Mm. So if we follow God, we don't progress. Mm. So that means maybe that if we progress, that means that we are poisoning everything. Which, which again, seems like an irony. I mean, maybe that was the, that's the current day thinking, but everything that you know the, the Portuguese and the Spanish did during the... During the Conquistador era and all the crusades that were led, um, you know, from the from the eleventh century onwards, they were in the name of progress. And it strikes me that we're now talking about this kind of, um, you know, religion as some sort of blockage to progress. And, and maybe that maybe that's certainly the case. And I, I mean, it just just comes to mind about the the issue of the, um, the corruptness of the of the Catholic Church. Um, Uh, I think in 2002 they were involved in some sort of scandal of of child abuse. Um, The Catholic Church opposes contraception, um, frowns on things like divorces. And these are things which today um, take place all the time. And I don't think anyone really thinks too much about them. It's very normal for those things to happen. So maybe we was referring to religion being a blockage in that kind of context. 
Well, I, I think he's certainly talking about, for instance, the sl sl Islamic State, maybe, you know, um, not, not them, but, you know, that kind of um, way of thinking, because in, in a way, I think they, th they think that they, what they're talking about is progress. Mm, yeah. For them, obviously, but not for the rest of no. the planet, is it? No, I mean, that's a tricky one, um, the issue over Islam at the moment, because I think a lot of people would would have you say that um, a terrorist fits this very stereotypical image of an Islamist, and it reminds me of um, of when I was coming once from London to Spain, and as I was walking through the security, um, I got pulled over and the chap started to search me. And I said, oh, it's, um, I suppose you have to do this. He said, yes, I do, because you might be Islamic. Oh, right. But of course, what he meant to say was that you could be a terrorist. Oh, of course. But he he yeah. got confused, yeah. and that that accidental confusion, um, I think, speaks volumes for uh, this very awkward um, perception that people generally have about what is terrorist and what is Islamic. It seems to be this horrible, awkward fusion of, of perspectives, and it, it's it's very stigmatic, really. Um, which which leads me to the other issue of. Um, of 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 Islam and um, I attended a um, a session the other day on terrorism um, and we had all these experts uh, from on terrorism and a lot of a few politicians around the table who had worked uh, in the where where uh, was this this was at the university thing? just here it was a mesorolanda de terrorismo oh, yeah. um, so we had a few politicians and a few experts from and they talked about how we should you know clamp down on terrorism and um, and distinguish the terrorists from the um, religious um, from Islamists, but um, and then uh, one of the speakers said, "Well, how can you um, fight something which, or how can you fight an organisation which is so fluid and in which you have people that are willing to die for their cause?" Mm -hmm. And it's true. I mean, the the religious, the extent to which people take their religions in. You know, for example, uh, Islamists is, is very different to the way in which Christians and Catholics um, would would treat their uh, religious attitudes. Would you agree? Well, the thing is that uh, maybe in the um, in the past, um, Catholics were a bit like you know they 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 used to act like uh, some Muslims, radical Muslims, mm. do now. You know, with the Spanish Inquisition, for yeah, instance. Yeah, that's true. That's right. Do you know much about that? Uh, not much, really. <laughs> that's something that we would. But be they used to torture to and punish in. people quite. Um, yeah, they were very sophisticated with mm. the tortures. We, we, it reminds me of, you know, uh, these people from Islamic State. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They becoming quite. I'm thinking now about the this um, the pilot, the latest right. yeah, um, yeah, yeah. horrific thing they've done. Yeah, they burned this poor man oh to death. He was in a cage. So, but I think that's the kind of thing that the, the Spanish Inquisition uh, used to used to do. Used to do, yeah. Uh, maybe it comes precisely back to what you were saying about progress, and you see that things like Christianity or Catholicism has has progressed um, from that maybe kind of brutal era to be much more um, subliminal in, how, in perhaps how it operates. But as you say, perhaps um, the way 
um, some Islamic law is, is carried out or, or religion is, is perhaps still perceived as being quite brutal. I know that in some African countries, if a woman is unfaithful against her husband, then that's considered to be the death penalty and the, that um, they'll be stoned. Um, but what about the Opus Dei? I mean, is that not some sort of modern-day version of what the Inquisition were doing? I mean, there's... Well, uh, I'm, I'm not an, an expert on no, the no. Opus Dei, but, uh, uh, well... They have they have um, examples of extreme practices of religious behaviour and they recruit minors, I think, quite um, dodgily. Uh, but uh, I, I don't know too much about them either. But that, that they seem to me uh, to be something sort of quite extreme. And I wonder if religion is something which has splintered over the years. Maybe, I've, uh, you know, you had very central um, types of religion which were fairly distinguishable and then you have... Um, sects of that religion. I think um, King Henry VIII was the one who decided to separate England from the um, from the Catholic Church. The Church of England. Yeah, and, and he started the Church of England um, built on his own basic principles of how he interpreted um, uh, the law. And I, I wonder if that is um, that kind of splintering is taking place. Um, there's also the story of the Mormons as well. Um, right. This cultural group from, um, I think that, uh, from, I think America, from some some chap called Brigham Young who, who was um, exploring the Utah Territory and claimed to have, um, have seen God, I think, and basically started his own religious movement. Um, one of the most controversial uh, things about the Mormons is that. Um, the men are permitted to marry as many wives as possible okay. to have as many partners. Okay. You look at me smiling. Um, <laughs> but uh, in some... Uh, I'm sure the Catholic Church could not be more upset about something like that. Um, but yet, this, the, you know, there still to this day exist people that, that follow these practices. Um, and unfortunately, you can see these very crude depictions on, on the TV of these, these documentaries almost making fun of them. But I wondered, you know, just... To finish off, um, my dear friend, whether yeah, this um, this song uh, REM losing my religion are we are we losing uh, well, touch with religion? Uh, I don't know if we're losing touch with religion. Um, however, I think it's important to keep some kind of values. Mm. I mean, religion offers a way of uh, of having having societal values, but whether or not. They're the correct ones. Yeah, if those values prevent us from progressing and you know improving our lives and, and developing as people as uh, as countries and all that. Yeah, being happier. That's true. But uh, who are we to say our existences are infinite and there is a higher being, or whether when it ends, it ends. Who knows? Yeah, we should talk about consciousness one day. Okay, for now, my friend. Thank you very much, my friend. It's always good to see you and talk to you. As always, a wonderful conversation. <laughs> see ya. Mm-hmm.